Hello everyone. Welcome to our show today, featuring another insightful study in the Bible Prophecy Masterclass, Part 3. As alluded to earlier, these will be random studies taken from the Book of the Revelation, insofar as, although the presentation is divided up into a sequential series of episodes, we will conduct the lessons in the upcoming podcast by arbitrarily selecting themes in no set order. Thus, on this fourth show, episode number 17 in the series, we will begin with chapter 7 of the book of the Revelation covering God's plan for reaping a second bountiful harvest of precious souls in the days leading up to the battle of Armageddon and the physical return of Jesus Christ. The text which is the basis for this study is Judgment Day, Volume 3, Armageddon, Acts of God vs. Gods of Earth, written by Mr. Alvin Mitchell. I, Liam, will be your affable narrator and host. For a more systematic approach to the study of the Revelation, may we suggest that you plan to purchase a copy of the text on Amazon.com when it becomes available. Please join me in a word of prayer and praise to God the Almighty for granting us this opportunity to delve into His Word and for giving us these awe-inspiring warnings and powerful insights into His awesome plans for the future of mankind and of the world as we know it. Let us pray also for blessing upon the study and upon all who make time to join in and to listen. Revelation Chapter 7 Tribulation Evangelism At this point, still early in the unfolding of God's choreographed end-times drama, hundreds of millions of souls, maybe more, are missing, vanished without a trace, blood-stained trails mar the paths to mass graves housing billions more, saints murdered, and sinners slaughtered during World War III. By virtue of their witness of this human carnage, some having first-hand knowledge, if they did not participate in the aforementioned bloodletting their stomachs turned will have experienced a change of heart. Coupled with all the evidences that remind of the snatch, in the midst of bombed out, burning buildings, bodies and body parts lining streets of all the major cities around the world, smoke will ascend up into the upper atmosphere from forest fires and oil fields set ablaze further complicating life and making lives miserable by blocking the sun, thereby contributing to a throwing off of the growing seasons. In the face of these and other horrifying sights, hard, heretofore, otherwise impenetrable hearts, impervious to the gospel message preached, will have softened tremendously. Traumatized minds will be flooded with streams of endless questions that will not suffer silence. Desperate searches in frantic quests for rational solutions will only be appeased by one unlikely source, namely, the Bible. Chains of doubt, shackled to lost souls that locked God out, by whatever means, for whatever reason, will have been loosened, leaving fertile minds exposed to a faith oft spurned, and now at last ready for a harvest long held at bay. In full awareness of this, the Lord God will have already graciously, mercifully prepared a troop that will fish for their souls, well in advance of the rivers of blood in which their corpses will float during the rain, and the terror, of the dreaded beast, Revelation. 13.1-18 War Moratorium God's Choice, New Direction Short Stick Barring traditional Judaism, all practical knowledge of God will have been eliminated from the earth. Without benefit of a more direct involvement and input, Satan will appear to have won the battle, the telling, chilling cameo appearance of an angry Lamb of God at the end of chapter 6, notwithstanding. Every Christian left behind will then be completely useless, if Christ came for his church today, January 4, 2013, the left behind could easily include perhaps 90-95% to of all professing Christians.
All denominations and churches will be under the devil's direct control and supervision, a definite impediment to anything God initiates and every soul that God will save, from here on out. Left behind, Christians, being false saints, false prophets and false preachers, in addition to unproductive, true saints given to compromise, or who simply refuse to grow, will doubtless have been instrumental in the roundup and slaughter of the first wave of new converts, specifically, those true Christians introduced to us, under the altar, in chapter 6. This being so, as is customary, the vision of the Lamb having dissipated, God will quietly shift gears here, changing course slightly, so as to lay the foundation for the next phase of His salvation program and process. His preference, like always, is to start in obscurity, in the least likely of places, in a corner where Satan is least likely to anticipate resistance, in a manner that is tantamount to always choosing, intentionally, the short end of the stick. That then begs the question, if the Old Testament Israeli-slash-Jewish saints and the pre-tribulation churches are in heaven, and, the first wave of tribulation saints are in the graves, how then will the work of evangelizing the second wave of lost souls be facilitated? Restless Winds Restrained Verse 1 And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Verse 2 And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Verse 3 Saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. The break in the action begun at seal number 5, in the previous chapter, continues here in chapter 7, it should be noted, perhaps, that contrary to the thinking and teaching of some, like Pastor Skeeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota, this passage does not represent the midpoint of the last seven years before the return of Christ. That midpoint, which is yet to come, is the point at which the beast's global reign will begin and it will last for only 3.5 years. There will be no Christian saved after this midpoint, which is the only time the beast will have global authority and at which time he will kill all Christians when they refuse his system of worship-based commerce, per Revelation. 13 for angels have been positioned at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that the winds cannot blow so as to disturb anything on the earth, or the sea, not even a tree. After this sight, John was shown an angel coming in from the east carrying the seal of the living God, who issued a stern directive intended for the four angels. It will be their responsibility to restrain the winds, conversely, theirs will be the authority and the ability to release those same four winds so as to hurt the earth and the sea, at the appropriate time. They were to continue their restraint of the four winds until the sealing of the servants of God upon their foreheads had been completed. The language of this passage is reminiscent of Daniel chapter 7. Thus, there is perhaps the best place from which to launch, as one strives for an accurate interpretation of this passage. The four corners of the earth simply signifies the farthest points due north, east, south, and west of the nation of Israel and conveys in general the idea, all around the world, as we would say today, or, global. The four winds suggest, unrest and turmoil, amongst the nations globally, including all of their anti-God, antichrist activities, or around the world, 
the nations and people of our planet being symbolized here by the sea, which is generally viewed as a symbol of perpetual restlessness that worsens with agitation from the wind, the earth and the trees may be representative of the peaceful elements of our world, as they are normally in a state of calm, moved only when acted upon by some outside force, in which case, they may be symbolic of more tribulation saints, over whom the moratorium has been declared as well, so that the killing of saints has for a time, for the duration thereof, been stopped. This would give them time to grow in spirit, as well as in numbers. In this way, they can contribute to the work of evangelism led by the 144,000. Hence, the sense of this passage in which the angel is restraining the four winds is such that the global agitation and fighting amongst the nations and peoples of the earth, the never-ending striving for supremacy begun by the advent of the crown rider on the white horse in 6 2 has for a time ceased, or has been brought to a standstill. Precisely where in time this cessation will start, and, how long it will last is difficult to pinpoint. It seems that one can say with some assurance that it will begin after the cameo appearance of the Lord Jesus, after World War III and the deaths of the first wave of tribulation saints, i.e., after the events of Chapter 6, the sealed judgments, for sure. Except for the acts of God, those apocalyptic, calamitous events and happenings that can only occur as He instigates and directs, and the incredible hostilities, dangers and hardships new converts will face, the locust attack, and, the work of his two witnesses, it appears that, when the cessation does start, all will be relatively quiet where the nations and international conflict are concerned, until the Battle of Armageddon. Jewish Evangelism, the 144,000 The Sealing Verse 4a And I heard the number of them which were sealed. In the interim, 144,000 servants of God will receive seals or marks in their foreheads, in Ephesians 1 verse 13 and 4:30, Paul speaks of the Christians being sealed with the Holy Spirit or Holy Spirit of promise, until the day of redemption. Ultimately, this may be what is envisioned here, though later the mark in the forehead is called the name of God. As shown earlier, the Holy Spirit will have been recalled to heaven from the earth, along with the snatch, or rapture, of the church. He will only reappear when dispatched for some special purpose, much like his Old Testament and early New Testament appearances with the Apostles. The Jewish evangelists will need special assistance and special enablement for enlightenment, insights, guidance that can only come via God's Spirit just as would any saint, in order to carry out the monumental task of global evangelism. There will be no teaching ministries to prepare them, once that last saint under the altar has been killed. This empowerment will give them the boost they need to fend against what may otherwise be insurmountable odds, and, to face daunting dangers and risks that will only intensify as the day of the beast draws nearer, in the short period of time they will have in which to work. Who are they? Verse 4b And there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 5 Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Verse 6 Of the tribe of Azar were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Nephthalim were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Manasses were sealed twelve thousand. Verse 7 Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed twelve thousand. 
Verse 8 of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed twelve thousand. Although these servants will be Christians, they will not be Gentiles. Rather, each of the 144,000 preachers will be Jewish. None will be Jehovah's Witness. They will all be select men, chosen only from the twelve tribes of Israel. Here in chapter 7, John tells us nothing else about these evangelists. Everything else we know comes from chapter 14. Thus, from the first few verses of chapter 14, we know that the 144,000 will be fervent, dedicated followers of the Lamb, which means their mission and life's goal from this moment forward will be to preach the everlasting gospel of the Lord and Savior they, and all Jews will have spurned theretofore. They will in all likelihood not come to a saving faith in the Christ until after World War III, the globally devastating war begun in chapter 6, otherwise they should be killed along with all of those whose souls appear under the altar, per chapter 6 9 9-11. If all this is so, how will God preserve them blameless until their hour of service? Devout, devoted, godly unbelievers. Evidently, these men will be orthodox, maybe even ultra-orthodox, Jews, more or less, who have striven up to this point to serve God according to their understanding of the law and their traditions, that is, traditional or biblical Judaism, as the term applies to OT law. In God's eyes, for sure, their lives are exemplary, they are, by most accounts and measures, well prepared psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, they are not whoremongers, they are not liars or deceivers. They are like firstfruits to the Lamb and to God, having been redeemed from the earth, from among mankind, apparently from another phase, maybe the beginning phases, of the tribulation period. Like everyone else, except the reject churches, they will have come over the threshold of the tribulation doorway, as unbelievers in their Christ. Being devout men already by Leviticus law standards, the tremendous events and occurrences of this time may be all that is necessary to change their minds, making them instantly vessels meet for the master's service. How saved? No indication is given as to how they will be driven to their knees, in a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We may safely presume that had this faith existed prior to the snatch, they would in all likelihood have been taken with the church. Had they been saved in the interim, following the fall of the United States or between the rise of the Jews and the end of World War III, Chapter 6, they might have been killed with that first tribulation wave of new converts, whose souls, crying out for justice, were comforted by the Lord, under the altar. In the midst of all that is mystery surrounding them, one thing we can ascertain, at some point God will turn on a light. Having observed them and kept them safe for such a time as this, recall Esther and Mordecai, as with the Gentiles Cornelius, Lydia, the Ethiopian eunuch and Apollos the Jew converted by Aquila and his wife Priscilla, God will not allow them to continue to serve in the error of their ways. Thus, that light will illumine for them a path that says, This is the way, walk ye in it. The signs of the times as they exist then will confirm that directive, whereupon, in humble contrition they will bow the knee in saving faith to the Lamb they in all likelihood will not have known, heretofore. In verse 1 of chapter 14, this group of 144,000 Jewish evangelists are shown standing with the Lamb, upon Mount Zion, having the Father's name written upon their foreheads, 
This observation is in all probability meant to be illustrative of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God and His residence within them by virtue of their faith in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Son of the living God. This name is symbolic of the mark that associates them with and identifies them as belonging to the Son. That they, as Jews, are willing followers of the Lamb wherever He goes, is very much indicative of their embrace of the Gospel message, and their enthusiasm for the proclamation and propagation of that message which historically the Jews have previously rejected, for two thousand years. Having been fully converted, then led to a saving knowledge of the Lamb, they will be totally committed and sold out to the cause and things of Christ, there is no biblical rationale for interpreting 7-4 and 14-1 as two different groups, or, as people other than the Jews they will be. One should like to re-emphasize, and stress that these people will not be Jehovah's Witnesses. The 144,000, Chapter 14 Introduction Chapter 14, Verse 1 And I looked, and, lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. This point in the Revelation narrative will likely mark the beginning of the ministry of the 144,000. Whereas it is currently impossible to ascertain with any kind of accuracy, it is certain that the devil's ouster from heaven will have been cemented within a few years afterwards, at which time also his access thereto will be permanently blocked. Details of this booting is outlined briefly in chapter 12 colon 3, 7-9, to 12-13. We may be assured also that the 144,000 will have to work fast, for they will not have much time. The devil's kingdom on earth via the reign of the beast will be above board, plain for all to see it clearly for what it is, bringing all gospel outreach to a screeching halt and spelling doom for all that the Jewish evangelists will have accomplished, insofar as none will take his mark or bow to him as God not even to save their own lives. Having been established firmly under his control, he will truly be the God of this world, via the indwelling, or the bestowal of all his power upon the one God calls the beast. Chapters 11 12 and 13, 17. Leading into this time of the rise and reign of the beast then, heaven must then proceed to implement plans and preparations by means of which to rescue as many as will heed what will be the last call for salvation during this exceedingly dangerous and deadly time. This will involve a massive evangelistic campaign manned by this Jewish team consisting of a hand-picked, specially trained group of men and one angel. The makeup, ethnicity, or racial identity of this group of specially chosen ones was established in the opening verses of chapter 7. There, we saw that their selection involved an angel dispatched from heaven bearing the seal of the living God, with whom each of the 144,000, all Jews, all chosen from among the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel, was to be marked and identified by an inscription placed upon their foreheads, without question. This mark is meant to symbolize the return and presence of God's Holy Spirit to indwell, instruct, guide and empower these holy, set-apart, workers, who will otherwise lack the training and the power they will need to complete their mission stand alone. Up to this point the Holy Spirit will have been removed from the earth, along with the saints at the rapture. Like Noah's boat, the Lamb's blood during the Exodus, and Lot's deliverance or a rapture, so likewise this mark will serve as an identifying feature that will indicate divine ownership and protection of all so inscribed, during the latter days of the Apocalypse. Here, in verse 1, of chapter 14, as they are pictured standing upon the mountain of Zion with the Lamb, their Savior and Leader, 
That seal that they received is identified as the name of the Lamb's Father, i.e., in a world that will then be dominated almost entirely by satanic influences, these men will have been singled out, and marked so as to stand out, in stark contrast, as men belonging to God the Almighty. They will have been kept under wraps, preserved in a cloak of tradition, devoutly dedicated to Levitical law, until the hour of their debut. In a world heretofore dominated entirely in the spirit realm by the demonic, they will be recognized as such in much the same way as Jesus, otherwise, incognito for thirty years, from his birth, was recognized by Satan and his demons, when the Holy Spirit lighted upon and indwelt him, symbolized by a shape like that of a dove, over 3.5 years. This kind of spirit assist will be absolutely essential and crucial to the work of these end-times Jewish preachers, as there will be no time for the training and fellowship sessions afforded the twelve, two thousand years earlier. There will be no time for direct interaction with the Father, like that made available to the Master in secret over the thirty years leading up to the first day of his 3.5-year ministry. Rather, in a manner similar, somewhat, to that of Paul the Apostle, when the moment of truth arrives, they must be singled out, called aside, informed of their mission and duties, informed and instructed to whatever degree that may be relative to details, outfitted with the mark that will identify, empower, guide, protect and preserve them throughout their journeys, then put to work. Verse 2 And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. Verse 3 And they sung as it were a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand, which were redeemed from the earth. Here, John heard a multitude of voices singing in unison. The sound was as if all were only one voice. In addition, upon hearing them, John was reminded of the flow of a powerful rush of waters, having a volume level and clarity that resounded like thunder. The heavenly choir had for accompaniment an orchestra of harpists, playing as they sang the lyrics to a new song which none, other than these men, could sing. Their audience included the Father seated upon his throne, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, i.e., the churches and O.T. saints. All right, my friends, here is where we will end this edition of the podcast in the Bible Prophecy Master Class. We sincerely hope that you have been blessed by this and all of the lessons in this series of studies. Plan to join us next time for the continuation of our look at end times evangelism as it will be conducted during the awful days of the apocalypse. Until our next meeting, may the good Lord bless each and every one of you.